Welcome to Divorce and Other Things You Can Handle, a branded podcast from Worthy, dedicated to celebrating women like you as you embrace a new beginning after divorce, separation, or whatever. I'm Mandy Walker, and I'm your host. Consider this. Your diamond ring, bridal set, or other diamond jewelry can be a hidden financial asset that helps you with that fresh start. But selling jewelry can be a nightmare. Worthy offers an easy, headache-free solution by partnering with you to help you sell your jewelry and get the best deal on your piece. Our quick and easy process means less work for you and more money when you sell, all done from the comfort of your home. Visit worthy.com to learn more. For this episode, we're talking about handling financial issues during the divorce process. Now, this is the period from when you and your spouse decided to get divorced, and it's before the court has actually issued a decree. It can be a very short period of time, or it could be months and months, or even years, depending on how contentious your situation is, and that there are a ton of money issues that come up during this period, and it can trip you up without you even realizing it, or it could make you tear your hair out. So here to help us make some sense of this is my guest, Lisa Zeidemann. Lisa is managing partner at Miller Zeidemann LLP in New York. Lisa was named to Crane's New York list of notable women attorneys for 2022 and regularly handles complex financial and custody divorce matters. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much, Mandy. I'm so excited to be on with you and having this discussion with you. Yeah, it's a, such a, a key a key topic, and a lot of people don't figure that out until it's too late. I normally like to avoid as much legalese as possible on these shows because it does all vary from state to state. But I think on this topic, a really good starting point is to talk about the temporary restraining orders that come into play as soon as a divorce petition has been filed. So happy to discuss that. So actually what we call it is the automatic orders in New York. And it's not so much that they come into play for both parties as soon as you file, because both parties need to be aware of it. So when you file, if you're the person who's filing, the automatic order is in effect the minute you file. But keep in mind, your spouse hasn't yet been served, likely. You've just filed. And so your spouse needs to actually be served in order for the automatic orders to take effect on your spouse. So in New York, that would mean actually someone handing the your spouse the actual summons, someone who is not a party to the action and it was over 18 years of age. I'm also going to add that they're not quite restraining orders. They are orders that prohibit you from transferring, withdrawing under certain conditions, but you can still meet your normal expenses. And so it's a little different than a restraining order. Okay. And I use, just for our listeners, I use that temporary restraining orders because that is what it's called in Colorado. And that just underscores why I, I try to avoid the legalese because there's all these just nuances in states. But I think on this topic, there's a general thing, like there are these restrictions that come into play as soon as you both know, the the formal process for getting divorce has been started. That's 100% correct. 
So, I mean, here in Colorado, it is, as you say, you can do the expenses in the usual course of business or necessities of life. But if there's any extraordinary expenses, you have to notify the other party and you have to account for all of those expenses after the filing. It doesn't say you have to have approval from the other party, but you have to at least notify them. So in New York, for the automatic orders, there are certain areas that you actually need permission. So for example, if you're going to withdraw monies from a retirement account, that you cannot do without written permission from either your spouse or from the court. On the other hand, if there's a checking account or a savings account or an investment account, to a large degree, if it's, as you said, in the normal course of business or in the normal course of paying expenses, you can do it. Now, we have had several cases where people in my mind, have violated that prohibition. And so they do go out and they buy the boat or they go out and they buy a house. They violated. And so in that particular situation where it becomes prejudicial to your client, you need to actually get into court and do something about it. Right. What guidance do you have about usual necessities of life? I mean, that seems like it could be a gray area. Well, sometimes it's a little bit gray, right? Because I think that sometimes we have situations where one spouse is overspending. And when I say overspending, beyond what the normal lifestyle would be. Now, I'm not talking about the lifestyle that people existed on during COVID because when people were walking around in their sweatpants and not dining out and not going on vacations, that's one thing. But the normal routine expenses that you would have paid if you were you know, as a family, vacations, second homes, perhaps, rental cars for vacations, leasing of of a car, you know, dining out, clothing expenses, et cetera. Depends on your lifestyle. If you were someone who would normally be spending and have a budget that was a certain amount, you should be living within that normal budget. That doesn't mean that you, you need to be on a new budget, okay? It means you need to be living within the status quo. So I always call it the status quo. You know, I think everybody knows what their status quo really is. They know that if they are taking 10 vacations versus taking one vacation a year, that 10 vacations is probably too many and they shouldn't have been spending down the money. And there will be a reckoning of that at some point sooner than later is my is my guess. Right. And then in a situation where the parties, they've decided to move apart and live separately, I mean, the household expenses have increased there, but it's reasonable for the person who's moved out. I mean, those expenses are still marital expenses. Well, you're correct. And then certainly reasonable if you need to get, you know, if you're getting a new apartment and you both agreed that it's best for you to move out or for your spouse to move out. And obviously, if your spouse needs a room for your child, a room for an au pair, the normal, again, the normal routine, then that would be reasonable expenses. They may not be considered marital expenses. Who is going to be responsible to pay those expenses is a question because now you have filed for divorce. And the question is, is it supposed to be coming from what is we call post-commencement, in other words, post the beginning of your divorce action, or should it be coming from marital funds? That's something that your lawyers will work out or that you'll work out with the court or you'll negotiate, et cetera. But 
What you raise is a really important point that I think people have to consider. When there are two homes instead of one home, likely there's going to have to be cutbacks on some of the expenses because you cannot operate two homes <laughs> at the same cost that you operated one home. And you and can't so, magically make up more money. Right. There's no machine to make the money. So it is reasonable to expect at that point that there will be some cutback. On the other hand, some routines have to continue. Private school, for example, if you know people have their children in private school, likely now is not the time that you're going to be taking your children out of the school that they've been in for a long period of time. Conversely, you might not be signing your child up for private school if you have all these expenses coming down the pike and your child has not gone to private school before right. and they should and there's a wonderful public school. So it's all it's using common sense. It is what is reasonable under the circumstances, because that is likely what is going to happen at the end of the day. It's it's going to be what's reasonable. And so for people who are trying to do this on their own without attorneys, what is your guidance there that they talk to each other? So, you know, people who are doing this on their own without attorneys, you know, I, I think it's buyer beware to some degree. Okay. Because the law in the area of divorce is very specialized. And so if they are going to do it on their own, they really need to work to be able to work together and they need to be able to figure it out. And when they come to drafting an agreement, I think it is best if they have an attorney review it. And I say that based on people coming to me after it's been too late. And now we have to unwind what has been done incorrectly. So, for example, in New York, there's certain statutory requirements in terms of how an agreement is written. And if you do not write the agreement correctly and have it drafted correctly and have those statutory requirements, and that involves calculations, et cetera, the agreement may be void and you've accomplished nothing. So, you know, it, I, I think it's great if people can sit down and if they can work this out, that's fabulous. But they should be guided by the fact that they need to understand the law and the legal aspects, and they should at least have somebody review it. Okay, good caution there. So I'm going to jump to another topic here, and that is I've worked with a lot of clients where their salary goes into an account that's being used to pay all the household expenses, and sometimes their spouse's salary is going into not the same account, their spouse's salary is keeping them. So is this okay for you to say, okay, well, I'm going to set up my own account and have my salary going to that. And then I'll just transfer what we need for our household expenses so that the other person doesn't still have access to all of that money. So depending upon the situation, <laughs> right? Because it's always dependent on the situation. But yes, normally I would say, that that would sound correct to me. And the reason being is that remember now we're dealing with something that is post-commencement. And I use that word because after you file your divorce action, after you file it, even before you serve it, after you file it, actually your income is no longer marital income unless you actually earned it. In other words, performed the work for it prior to the action starting. So you may want very well to start a new account, but... I'm also going to say you want to make sure that you're funding the expenses on a status quo basis. So if you were the person who was 
paying the mortgage, the taxes, the credit cards, et cetera, and your spouse is cooperating and it's within the normal course of your status quo, then you should continue to make sure that you do that because otherwise you're going to likely end up in a situation where you're going to be in court. It's going to get expensive in terms of motion practice, legal fees, et cetera. So it's not time to ratchet things up for the sake of ratcheting them up. Okay. And what about shared credit cards? I've heard some advice that since you may not be able to remove the other person on a from an account, you could lower the credit limit, lowering your exposure to them doing the abnormal expenses. Because, I mean, buying a motorbike is one thing, then you've got an asset to go with it. But if they're going to gambling or spending the money on drugs or something, that money can't be recouped. That's 100% correct. And you definitely want to limit your exposure to that. If that is what is happening, frankly, they shouldn't have your credit card even before your divorce action is started. <laughs> if they're using it for gambling or for spending it on you know, drugs or other illegal activities or even on extramarital affairs, et cetera, that is what we call a wasteful dissipation of assets. And A, that may be recoverable if you can prove it, but B, it should be on your credit card. You should take that person off your credit card at that point if that's what's happening. Right. And then if the divorce has been filed, you'd have to let the other person know that you're removing them from the credit card account. So I would say you always want to let the other person know because you don't want that other person showing up at your children's school, for example. And or dentist or whatever it is that they're going to be or going for gasoline and your children are in the cars. Exactly. So a warning is definitely a good thing to do. And telling the other spouse, communicating, being transparent about it is really important because you do not want that parent to be in a situation where they are with your children or in front of a provider and the credit card is not going through. And if that other, if your spouse doesn't have a credit card, then they need to get a credit card before you do that, because otherwise that can be misconstrued or has the appearance of financial abuse. So either either getting a credit card or making sure that there's some arrangement for your spouse to have access to funds. Right. So, you know, your spouse may not be able to get a credit card. Maybe your spouse's credit is not good and and they can't get a credit card. So but having some access to sufficient funds that they are not in a situation where, as you say, you've become financially abusive to your spouse. You know, we talk about that issue of financial abuse all the time, and it is absolutely a serious issue, particularly, frankly, for women. Right. I will maybe come back to that, but let's take a short break here, Lisa. Sure. Listeners, my guest today is attorney Lisa Zeidemann, managing partner at Miller Zeidemann LLP in New York. You're listening to Divorce and Other Things You Can Handle. We'll be right back and do stay tuned for more advice on handling financial issues during the divorce process. Moving past divorce is hard enough without your old engagement ring staring you in the eye every time you open your jewelry box. With Worthy, you'll find a selling partner who will help you transform your ring from a symbol of the past to a financial asset to help you start fresh. Worthy takes care of everything, from insurance coverage to secure shipping, 
professional grading, and more. So when you're ready to sell, visit worthy.com. We're ready when you are. Welcome back to Divorce and Other Things You Can Handle. I'm your host, Mandy Walker. And in this episode, we're talking about financial issues that crop up during the divorce process. My guest today is attorney Lisa Zeidemann. Lisa is managing partner at Miller Zeidemann LLP in New York and was named to Crane's New York's list of notable women attorneys for 2022. Lisa regularly handles complex financial and custody divorce matters. Lisa, right before the break, we were talking about credit cards and financial control. And I do often see it. It often seems that it's the women who are more exposed to that financial control. So let's, let me just ask you this question. If, if your spouse has cut down your or removed access to a credit card and now has put you on this budget, and I've heard of this where it's really restrictive that they're given like $500 for the month or $400 for the month in the checking account and you're trying to struggle to make the grocery bills and there's no, it's not what was happening before. What, what's your recommendation? What, would, what should they be doing then? Well, they should be getting help. So they are likely being financially abused and they should be seeking out help. So there are centers across the country who will help women in their situation. As you know, I'm on the board of an organization known as Savvy Ladies. I'm vice president of that board. We have a free one-on-one helpline where they can be matched with a financial professional and can help them perhaps identify the situation. They may need to get an attorney or they should be speaking to a therapist, but they should be getting help so that they don't end up in that situation. And you're right, it happens to women, I believe, more than men, and it has really seems to have escalated over the years. It is definitely a way of controlling women and controlling people in general, Because if you take away literally their access to funds, they can't leave the house. They can't get the groceries. They can't help their children. They are stuck. And as you likely know, there are many shows actually on Netflix, et cetera, about this particular subject matter. And it's devastating. And I think sometimes the motivation is financial manipulation into forcing somebody to agree to a settlement or a division of assets that is not in their interest. And then the person feels like, I have to do this because that's the only way out. I think that's 100% true. It is about getting someone to capitulate in many cases. And there are various forms of financial abuse. One is, as you said, limiting the amount of money that they have access to, but there's other ways, not giving them passwords so that they can see what is actually in the accounts. There are women actually out there and men who have quite a a bit of assets and yet they have no idea because they've never seen any of the account statements, not letting them see the tax returns each year, signing signing those tax returns for them or having them filed and not telling them about it. There, There are so many forms of this type of control You know, one of the clues that I always say women and men should look for is when the bank statements are no longer going to the home, when the address has been changed 
to a work address or someone else's address, et cetera, that to me is a sure sign that something is not right. Right. And not having the passwords in, in this day and age is the same as that because many things are now being done online. Right. So I'm going to make sure that we put the um, that hotline for Savvy Ladies in the show notes so listeners will have that. And then if you think that you are in a financially abusive situation, do call that hotline. And I'm going to say that that's not a situation where you want to be doing the divorce yourself. You really need to have a divorce attorney to help you there. Just jumping back where we had talked, one of the other strategies about credit cards was possibly to reduce the the credit limit on it to minimize your exposure. And I'm just wondering, does that hurt your credit rating? Or are you just balancing like the risk there? It's like, I'll take a short term hit on my credit rating to avoid the risk of really overspending and having more debt than we can manage. I'm really not sure how it affects your credit rating. I will say that if your credit cards are out of control and you can't pay them because somebody has gone on a spending spree, that will definitely affect your credit rating. Yeah, Yeah. right. So maybe this is related and um, those injunctions or restraining orders, whatever the legal term is, um, you've hinted on this, that they don't actually stop anybody from doing any of those things. You can still go out and... You could take somebody off your health insurance. You could remove them as a beneficiary. You could go out and do the extraordinary expenses. So what's the um, comeback to that? So the automatic orders are essentially orders that prohibit you from doing all the things that you just listed. That being said, people sometimes do what they're prohibited from doing. And then you need to see an attorney and or consult with your attorney and then make sure that this is addressed. And that may mean, and we just did this, frankly, a few weeks ago, where someone had gone and and frankly transferred quite a bit of money without permission. Our client told us about it. We went into court with motion practice and the money was actually returned to the account. And then we requested restraining orders on all the accounts, actual restraining orders that would be served upon the institutions so that the institutions were then notified that they could not just allow any transfers, withdrawals, any of that. And that is truly a restraining order. So it's really imperative if you see that this is happening, not to just stay silent, but instead to let your attorney know and you know, your attorney will then decide whether it's best to speak to the, you know, opposing counsel or to go to court, or to have a conference, or to put in motion papers. And of course, if somebody has changed the beneficiary on a life insurance policy, you wouldn't necessarily know about it until like after you've, you've actually passed away, or they pass away, and then find that the proceeds are going somewhere else. So what we do is we usually subpoena those particular records, and keep in mind, as time is going on, as you're proceeding through your case, case, if it's a complex case, you're likely going to be getting discovery on an ongoing basis, updated statements, et cetera, where you can see if a beneficiary has been changed. Plus, there'll be an opportunity to do what we call depositions, where you actually are asking certain questions under oath of the other, of the other party. 
And that's usually one of the questions that I ask, who is the beneficiary of your life insurance policy currently? Have you made any changes to it? So there's opportunities to do that. And then, of course, there are situations where someone has actually done it, and then we've had to go into court and get it changed back with a direction that the party actually signed certain documents, et cetera, to notify the life insurance company to change the beneficiary back. It's not foolproof. Nothing is foolproof, right? But you need to make sure that you're paying attention, that your attorney is paying attention, and that these things are being taken care of. And maybe you have to make an assessment as to, you know, like what legal action you want to take depends on really the the damage or the the harm that's being done. And maybe you weigh up whether it needs to be pursued in court or whether that's something that you can adjust for in the division of assets. Correct. And so, you know, it's an interesting thing, right? If someone is taking $50 and there's only 75, well, that's a problem, right? If someone is taking 100,000 and there's 10 million, okay, do we really mind that the person is taking 100? Yes, we mind, but the answer is, is it prejudicial to you? And if it's not prejudicial to you, maybe it's something that you raise with a, a court or your adversary, or you work at some sort of a stipulation where each person is now going to get $100,000 as an advance right. against their equitable distribution. There's lots of ways to do it. Okay. So then, so that's, that's good. There's like, you can be creative and address it in different ways, but I'm just wondering, you know, what do you recommend for, you know, that during this period where you're still working, the divorce hasn't been finalized and you're working through this, you know, what do you recommend to people for like monitoring household expenses and money in, money out during this? So I always recommend sticking with the status quo. Okay. The status quo is what's supposed to happen. Somebody should be depositing their, their paychecks as they usually do. And somebody should be spending as they usually do. I will tell you, it rarely works out as we progress through the case, right? Somebody decides that they're no longer going to deposit those paychecks. Somebody decides they're not going to deposit their bonus. You know, it's not appropriate anymore to deposit the bonus because the bonus is separate property. Uh, Somebody is spending too much. So it's a case-by-case basis. And when people come to us and they ask me that question, I deal with it on a case-by-case basis. And presumably your advice would be the same with like an, an unusual expense. I mean, some of the examples I had was like, you know, if your kids need their wisdom teeth pulled, I mean, most of the time we see joint decision making or you're making joint medical decisions. So it's a, it's a, it's a conversation you have to have with each other about the wisdom teeth getting pulled and what it has to happen. But then it's like, and, and it's going to cost us this much. And we've always split medical expenses or you've paid it in the past or, you know, how to have that conversation. How are we going to spend, how are we going to cover it? I always try and tell my clients, you know, what, you know, none of us like financial surprises unless it's a big, a big deposit into our bank account. But those expenses, we, nobody wants that. So talk to each other. Exactly. That, that's exactly right. And, you know, yes, it's true. You're not going to pull wisdom teeth every single year. But taking care of your children's teeth is something that you probably have done all the way through, right? So you're going to continue to do that. And again, it's about being reasonable, practical, et cetera. You know, there's also going to be other expenses for your children, right? It's very likely that your children may actually end up seeing a therapist 
during the time that you're going through a divorce, right? That's not an expense that maybe you had before, but it is an expense that maybe you have now. It may be for a short term or it may be for a longer term, but that's an expense that is a new expense. But if it's for your children's best interest, then likely you want to do that. And then something that's not related to children, but saying my car needs a new timing belt or needs new brakes. I mean, there's not an insignificant expense. But maintaining my car has been a marital expense. Is it reasonable? Again, I have a conversation. This has to happen because otherwise my car is going to break down completely. Exactly. How are we going to handle it? Exactly. Exactly. Again, practical, reasonable, right? Nobody wants you to drive in an unsafe car. (laughs) No, but sometimes people don't want to pay for that. Or, you know, I think oftentimes just because... There is opposing interests, so or fears. That's that's likely true, but again, you know, everyone. And I say this, you know, I wake up in the morning, and when I answer my clients' questions, I try to always think about what is the judge, okay, going to think. You may not. I might not even be in court. It may be a case that I'm negotiating. The question in my mind, I, I can picture a judge in my mind, right? And I can say, what would that judge think if my client did this? Or what would the judge think if the other side did this? Look, I've been in court enough to understand what a judge is likely going to think is reasonable and in the children's best interest, et cetera. I'm not saying that we always get it right, but we get it right many more times than we get it wrong. Right. So that's that's good advice. I was curious if you had a specific judge that you visualized in your head as you were thinking about that. <laughs> I do. I Believe it or not, I do. I, I do. I won't share who it no. is, but I do. There is one judge that I always think of when I when I have that conversation with myself. Okay. So let's let's say for people who aren't working with an attorney's, I mean, I love that idea of having that conversation. And I'm just wondering how you would position it for people who aren't working with attorneys, whether you would say, okay, well, imagine that the roles are reversed and it was your spouse who was spending that or wanting that and coming to you. How would you feel about that? So there's two parts to it, right? One, that's one way to look at it. The other is, are you putting your children's needs first? If you have children... Yeah. That's the question you have to ask yourself. Are you putting your children's needs first or are you putting your your want to win hat on as opposed to your children's needs first? That's the question that I think you have to answer when you decide whether it's practical, for example, if the engine in the car gets fixed or if the seatbelt gets fixed or if you're leaving your spouse without enough credit to get gasoline or to pay the dentist, right? Those are the questions that you have to ask yourself. Right. Lisa, that's excellent guidance. And I really appreciate you spending your time with us this down today. And and we really are up up on time. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's been a, a really good conversation. And I look forward to doing it again with you, Mandy. That would be awesome. Thank you so much, Lisa. And listeners, my guest today was Lisa Zeidemann, Managing Partner at Miller Zeidemann LLP in New York. And we will put all of Lisa's social media and website and contact information, as well as the link to Savvy Ladies for their financial hotline in the show notes. 
Make sure you subscribe so you can catch every new episode of Divorce and Other Things You Can Handle in your weekly feed. If you like what you hear, rate and review us to help other women like you find us. This podcast is for you, so please reach out to us at podcast at worthy.com to let us know what you think and what you'd like to know about. We look forward to hearing from you. You can also find more episodes at worthy.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening to Divorce and Other Things You Can Handle, a branded podcast from Worthy. Worthy is a selling partner you can trust to help you get the best deal possible on your diamond jewelry. Visit worthy.com to learn more and get started. If you have questions about an episode, compliments you'd like to share, or would like to be a guest, please email us at podcast at worthy.com. Follow the podcast at We Are So Worthy on Instagram or see our Facebook page, Divorce and Other Things You Can Handle, for information about the show. Please see our show notes at worthy.com forward slash podcast for resources and more information about today's episode and guest. I'm your host, Mandy Walker. You can learn more about me at mandywalker.com. Huge thank yous to Worthy's production team. Listen, follow, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Our next episode will be live in two weeks, so stay tuned.